93.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Javelin Richards. Welcome to Cover to Cover, Javelin Richards at Javelin's Bistro. And good afternoon, everyone that is listening to the show. It's good to be back after a wonderful and successful fun drive that KPFA uh, just had for our spring break. So it's good to be back on the air with you and, and happy that we had some wonderful support from everybody. And so thank you, as always, for keeping KPFA on the air. Today... I have a guest that's going to join me in a few moments. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to talk about comedy, uh, comedy from a couple places. And my guest today, Samson Kalakar, and I hope I say that right, I always call him Sam. He runs the Oakland Comedy Club here in Oakland, and that's on Webster. And it's a wonderful club with such a good crowd every time I'm down there. And surprisingly, when I'm in the streets and talk to people, like in my Pilates class, People have had an opportunity to go to the club and it's become one of their favorite spots. So you can always go online and look up Oakland Comedy Club. It's, it's above the Spice Monkey uh, here on Webster Street. And uh, Sam, which is what I call him, Sam is the world's only Indian Jewish stand-up comedian. Yes, you heard that right. And there's rare occasions we can say the only, but he is the only. And Sam has been featured on NBC, CBS, SF Chronicle, and has performed all over the United States, Canada, and India. And Book My Show named him one of 10 best Indian original comedians of the last decade. And today we'll talk about Oakland Comedy, the club itself. He'll tell us a little bit more about that and then tell us about his one uh, man show that he's doing. And it's about his family and being married for 10 years and what that's about and his perspective and see uh, if some of us can find a landing place inside of his story to see if we also have some uh, similar moments or if he gives us insight. So welcome, Sam. Are you there? Yes, I am, Jovelyn. How are you? I'm doing good, Sam. So, Sam, you, first I wanted to ask you this here. Comedy right now is in such a interesting position in terms of some of the, the, the comedians that's been on TV, most recent Roseanne. So I know this is a little bit probably going in a little deep starting it off, but I wanted to ask you as a person who's running comedy shows, who's a stand-up comedian, how how do comedians begin to re-look at how we do our work or what's funny and what crosses the line? Have you any thoughts about that? And we, you know, have comedians that are, that are, we put ourselves out there, we say things off the cuff, we just tr- trust the moment and yet sometimes it can end up and and rightfully so in this case where it has some deep consequences but that's the extreme but there's also the steps before the extreme have you any thoughts about that as a comedian and working with comedians how to navigate that 
Right. That's a very philosophical question that I have a very unphilosophical answer for, I think. But I, I don't think it's that different than any day-to-day conversation you have with anybody in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Comedy, in some sense, is a conversation. It sounds like the comedian's the only one talking, but the audience is responding back. And that leads to a conversation as well, whether you agree or you disagree. And I think what we discover is when you don't get the feedback that you expect, there's a disagreement, that should help you calibrate. Now, does every comedian understand whether they have crossed the line and they need to pull back or calibrate, or uh, is is it just one of those instances where no matter what you do, it doesn't work? Would they go back and think over it and try to get better? Uh, some of them do, some of them don't. So I I don't know if I have a very deep philosophical answer to that. I think it's as simple as you try a joke, and if it doesn't work, then you can go back and think about how to make it work. And you want to try and make it work in every conversation you have with the audiences at various shows. And if it does, then you know you're on the right track. And if there are objections, then you have to evaluate whether it's a valid objection and you want to make changes or stick to your guns, basically. I like that. And thank you, because what I hear, what I hear you saying is that, that we think it's a solo thing happening on stage. But if you're listening to your audience, you're actually listening to the conversation. And if you, you happen to say something for whatever particular reason where it comes from, you can sense whether or not you have crossed a line and then can reevaluate that. And so for me listening, it's reevaluating whether or not I, I want to continue on that track because there's a point that I want to make as a comedian. But I also recognize if I'm listening to the conversation with the audience that to get that point, I think needs to be to come across. I may need to go a different way and not and look at whether or not it's worth offending or hurting people if I'm trying to make some greater point. So it's really about analysis and listening. Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. So, Sam, what's what inspired you to start Oakland Comedy? No, uh, more than inspiration, it was frustration. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are so many badly run rooms uh, where I I, I found it, for the first three years that I was doing stand-up, I basically took the advice of the people who had been doing it longer, who said you should perform in every possible room, in every possible city, in every possible audience setting. Um, And that helps you identify where you will thrive. And I quickly discovered not in the scene the way it was when I started because there was just a lot of bar shows which I don't prefer at all because you're battling a lot of uh, distractions. And very few shows are shows where comedians think as producers and actually put the effort to make the show worthwhile. For a lot of comedians, it's just about I'm going to go up, I'm going to tell my jokes, and I don't care about anything else. And some of them relish the battle. They're like, oh, there are so many distractions. In spite of the distraction, can I extract a laugh from somebody? Then I have won something, which I never understood what you win. So for me, I I was just frustrated doing a lot of the shows that didn't cater to what I wanted to do in comedy. And I always believed you can either sit and complain or shut up and do something about it. I decided to do something about it, started a show. And nine years later, uh, it's one of the best things I ever did. It really is. And for so many people, the audience and the atmosphere, the aesthetics of, of Oakland comedy connected to, with Spice Monkey, the food, the celebration it really feels, uh, it's a really nice space to be on, uh, Friday, Saturday. Are you still running Thursday shows as well? Correct. We have one show on Thursday, two on Fridays, and two on Saturdays. 
Okay. And people can always get more information by going to www.oaklandcomedy.com and get more information. Correct. Okay, good. So now we know that out of frustration, you started Mm -hmm. Oakland Comedy. What was your inspiration of creating this one-person show of your 10-year marriage? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So two things, right? One is... um, because I had to create my own stage time, which was through Comedy Oakland, um, there was a lot of time spent in doing the non-performance part of the show, right? Advertising, marketing, ticketing, uh, customer response, uh, budgeting, spending, fretting over whether the show is going to have an audience or not. And just even when we get there, just the setup of the room, because it's not a built comedy club. We convert it into a comedy club from a restaurant through the day. And so I had spent a lot of time producing Comedy Oakland. Then I started my uh, the big South Asian Comedy Festival and a lot of time and energy spent producing that. And I think somewhere along the way over the last few years, I started getting noticed more as a producer and less as a comedian, I felt. And so I wanted to make sure my comedian side also thrived. Because that's the whole purpose of me producing shows, is to be able to perform comedy. And so I had planned to launch my solo show in September of 2016, but eventually managed to do it in April of 2018. True to my Indian traditions, I started a year and a half late. <laughs> so and there's a part of your show where you you have really it's a really good philosophy i don't know if it's a philosophy but it's where you talk about getting married but spending time to know the habits of, of one's partner we should spend time with the in-law so oh yes yeah. share, share. <laughs> like where did that come from and how did you come up with that part of it throwing your bit because a lot of people when you hear it I can, you could hear them breathing and then mm-hmm. laughing in the audience like yeah that would have told me a lot so tell us about that and with your inspiration behind so, that bit a lot of it basically comes from my real life day to day scenarios right where uh, more recently I, I've been realizing how my wife is turning into her mom and we hear about these things, right? You grow up to be your parents, uh, which is great. But then all the tips that I have with my wife and me not agreeing on things and my mother-in-law and me not agreeing on things and then seeing both of them do the same things made me realize that I talk about in America how you have a live-in relationship arrangement mm-hmm. where you're evaluating the other person, see if you're compatible. But the problem is you're evaluating the person the way they are today. And... People change, especially after marriage. There was an old saying I remember. Uh, I didn't come up with it, but I really love this, which says, a, man, a woman marries a man hoping he will change after marriage, and he doesn't. A man marries a woman hoping she will not change after marriage, and she does. And so I've seen my wife change over the last 10 years. It's a different person. I'm, now, I'm probably married to a different person now than I was 10 years ago. And over that change, I've realized she's also become more and more like her mom. And in India, we have this idea of a, a arranged marriage where the parents meet, which is basically the future of you evaluating the future of your spouse. Like, can our futures live together? And if they think they can, then I think you should get married, which I think is a very uh, insightful method. Americans don't think that way. Uh, neither do Indians, but my take on it, right? Mm-hmm. 
like my parents know what I'm going to grow into. And if I can, if they can deal with her parents, then I can deal with her in 10 years. So futuristic outlook. It's futuristic, yes. Yes. But then there are problems there too, because you only meet a few times in a very formal setting. You don't need to, you don't get to know each other. Like even if I met my in-laws before I got married, few formal meetings, you don't know them that well. Which is why I think the best of both worlds is when you combine both the systems together and have a live-in relationship with your mother-in-law. I think that would be I think it would be absolutely fabulous. I think back over my three husbands and had I met their, <laughs> their fathers. Yeah, and this is a gender-neutral uh, suggestion. You should be spending time with your <laughs> potential father-in-laws. And I, I do explain the whole idea. It, there's nothing sexual about it. That's not the point of my joke. I'm not intent on sleeping with the enemy. <laughs> the, only, <laughs> the only point is if I had spent six months with my mother-in-law before I got married, I could have discovered other annoying habits that were about to come my way in the future. And yes, and been prepared for it. How did you discover, Sam, that you were the world's only Indian Jewish stand-up comedian? How did that happen? Because there are barely five to 6,000 Jews in India, and I know almost 99% of them. And I've been keeping a, you know, I have my own drones hovering in India, keeping an eye on all the other Jews of India. <laughs> Nobody's taking up comedy. If they do, I'm going to take them out. what a brave act that is for you to so you come here and you're hanging out and you decide to do comedy was there at any point where you was thinking your sense of humor would it translate in a uh, western culture humor did you or is there extra steps you have to take or another way to examine when you're writing your material or experiencing your material in fact that was my biggest concern when i started is how are americans going to understand a third world immigrant how will my comedy and my life experiences relate to an american audience and one of the biggest uh, fears i had because i used to hear a lot of comedians that i would not understand what they are trying to convey so i had that disconnect with mainstream american comics and so like if if i don't understand them how will they understand me but then there were also enough American comedians who I could completely understand and, and relate to. And that's where comedy is so subjective, right? Mm. And what initially was my fear that I don't have the American nuances, I don't understand the American insider jokes, I won't have those up my sleeve, became to what I think is an advantage because now I'm not just another American comedian regurgitating the same old stereotypes with the same old premises and the same old concepts. It's something completely fresh and brand new. As somebody who's from a third world coming to a first world and having a point of view, which I don't think was being done a lot when I started 10 years ago. A lot of the South Asian comedians or Indian comedians are born and raised here. So they are second generation and they are still very American. I actually had this one instance in Stanford. We were doing a show at Stanford It was an all-Indian comedy show, and at the end of the night, uh, some European guy walks up to me and goes, why are all these other comedians claiming themselves to be Indian? They're American. You're the only Indian comedian on this lineup. And that, to me, was very interesting. It was like, all right, white dude, chill out. (laughs) You don't need to divide us again. It's okay if they want to consider themselves Indian. But that is where I realized that there is common suffering in in humanity that we can all relate to if i have issues with my wife and my my in-laws that's a universal problem 
So, absolutely, there's there's a part of your performance that you you talk about your children, mm-hmm. and that when you first got in comedy, a lot of people made commentary about because you quit your job, your wife quit her job, and that. Without a doubt, every time you talk about that, the audience just absolutely, first of all, they're on this journey while you're telling it with the same mm-hmm. question, how did, how do you quit your job? I mean, that's definitely mm-hmm. not Western culture thinking. But then when you hit them with the, with the story, it's like everybody explodes. Share that with our listening audience. You're listening, KPFA listeners, you're listening, uh, to Sam discuss. He runs a comedy club here in Oakland, Comedy Oakland, uh, and he's also has this one person show that's traveling throughout the United States. So share with us that part about your kids and quitting your yeah. job. I talk about how my wife quit her job, I quit my job. We both used to work in tech because that's the law. We are both Indians in the Silicon Valley. And uh, a lot of my friends would be very worried and ask me things like, how are are you going to raise two little kids in the Silicon Valley without a job? And I tell them, I am going to give both my kids a very thorough third-world experience because I don't want them to miss out on my childhood. <laughs> you should, you're, when you're up there doing it, I know you can see the audience, but sometimes from the back, just to watch people, because that is a relatable thing, because we're all aware of of different spaces in the world and how the, the challenges economically, spiritually, etc., all of the things that make that up. So that's that interconnectedness, and it's just absolutely hilarious to, to witness that and and bring us to that connection. How has your one-person show been going? That's been going good. Uh, I now have enough of uh, shows under my belt that I'm comfortable again. Because with the very first one, I was a little nervous. I hadn't done an hour in a long time. I would do it sporadically at private events, but not consistently in a public setting. So now that I've done four shows, my next two are coming up within the next 30 days. Uh, Going pretty good. Lots of good feedback. And we'll see how that... So in fact, even when I started, my original plan for the solo show was a different topic. But by the time I launched it a year and a half later, it all became about my my adopted child and my 10 years of marriage that's what the show is primarily about and it's called trapped in a family mm-hmm. an evening of clean witty humor with the world's only indian jewish stand-up comedian how does your children how do you think being a uh, comic has helped you in the process of raising you have two daughters right correct right and and how do you think that that has lent something to being a parent, a father, uh, walking, being in the world as a comedian, running shows and looking at humor and the diverse uh, uh, comedians that you have, you bring on the stage and then in front of your stand-up shows, so many different people you're meeting. Has it impacted or at all or influenced or made you think differently or the same or about parenting? Uh, I don't know. I think... Parenting by itself is a learning process because we think we are going to raise kids better than our parents raised us until you have your own kids and then you realize the only thing that works with them is bribes and threats. Uh, so it's it's no different, right? And for me, what's, what's interesting is to see my kids 
uh, get excited about me performing shows. They want to come and watch those shows. They're seven and four. So even added up together, they are not allowed in clubs. But I have sneaked them into the Comedy Oakland shows on the yeah. 31st of December once. And sometimes when my wife had some things to do, so I had to take the kids with me. I would put them in an adjacent room at Spice Monkey mm-hmm. while the shows were happening. And they don't sit in one place, so they would both sneak in to the showroom. And for them, it's a lot of fun just to watch shows and see daddies up on stage telling jokes and people are laughing. And my seven-year-old is getting a little uh, comedianness in her as well. She already has her first joke about me, which I was very impressed, uh, came from, she goes, my dad's name is Samson. And he does shows at night, so I call him Samsonite. Oh my! God. That's pretty good. That's a that good wordplay joke for a seven-year-old. Yeah. Oh my goodness! And so <laughs> wait, and so okay, so you're in this trapped in this marriage. Do you think that comedy helps in your relationship with your wife? I don't know about that. It certainly helps me stay sane because. Uh, I, I do talk about this in the show as well, how my wife and I, uh, the communication between us has completely broken down. When I ask her a question, the answer I get back usually has nothing to do with the question until she explains how she made the whole lateral jump from what I started with where she ended with. <laughs> and it's just completely absurd for me. Like what? What is that? Okay, like I get it, it intellectually. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> this happened literally last two weeks ago. Right, uh, we it was Mother's Day, May thirteenth, mm-hmm. and so I was like, "Hey, it's Sunday. Want to go watch a movie?" And she goes, "Which movie?" And I go, "How about Black Panther? It's still playing in the theaters. We still haven't seen it." Now, as a comedian, every single show I'm hearing people talk about Black Panther. It's constantly on my Facebook stream. It's everywhere. Like I'm hearing about Black Panther every single day. It's like I've seen the movie without seeing the movie. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, do you want to watch Black Panther? And my wife goes, what's that? And for a second, I'm like, wait a second. You don't know what Black Panther is? And she goes, no, I know Pink Panther. Oh, my gosh. I, 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 exactly. That was by exactly. <laughs> like, How the hell are we married? Like, right. who, is this, who is this woman? Who is this woman who doesn't <laughs> yeah. know what Black Panther is? Right, right. And so, just moments like those. I, now, that hasn't made its way on the stage yet, but I'm sure somewhere along the way I'm going to try it because it's just so absurd to me, at least, as a comedian, that my wife doesn't know about Pink Panther while, uh, or Black Panther while I'm hearing about it every single day. And well, so just that kind of disconnect. Well, you know, what's funny to me in listening is is I'm thinking to myself, did you did you ask her the question just like that? Did you say it's Sunday? I mean, that's what you're just telling me. But you, hey, you want to go see a movie? <laughs> now, Pretty see that much. to me for some reason seems Pretty much. It's just like it's we we are at home. We don't have, we have some time. We don't have anything else planned. Want to go catch a movie? Right. And most often than not, we end up watching cartoon movies for the kids. So yeah. we barely watch a movie. So I'm like, why don't we go watch Black Panther? And then we didn't go for the movie, right? Because there's like, how do, uh, with the conversation just weird off into a strange abyss. Do you, now, how would you define your humor, the way you look at the world? I know there's some people say dry humor is one of them that comes to my mind. How would you describe your humor? Honestly, I don't know. I think there are other people who can describe it better than I can. Yeah. But you, I, you, I you deliver, to, yeah, watch you on stage. Like I remember one time you just came, I think a road trip with your in-laws. Mm-hmm. 
and that was a few months back. And you walked on stage, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was livid at you, the time. Right. You, <laughs> you were hysterical because you started off telling my job. You were livid. <laughs> It's everything that so, I wanted to say at home to their face that I was saying on stage to the audience. <laughs> it was hysterical. Tell us about the trip. It was hysterical. Oh, don't get me started. I'll start screaming and yelling on the phone. <laughs> you, and you're at work in your office. So <laughs> Sam is talking to me from his office at work in the conference room. So he's trying to avoid shouting because we live in a sensitive society right now. And he starts screaming. It can turn into 911. What's your emergency? <laughs> Sam is screaming alone. He's by himself in the conference room and he's screaming about some in laws. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. So we won't, okay, we don't want to upset you at work. No, 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 but since you asked the question, I'll tell you what basically happened was this. I've known my in laws for 10 years. I know how they travel, my mother in law especially. Mm -hmm. So she's what I call a checkbox traveler. She's like, how many things have you seen in this trip? She's more more in, uh, in, interested in quantity. Okay. And I remember doing that when I came to America 12, how many is it now? 17, 18 years ago, mm-hmm. where because we had limited time and limited money, we want to maximize. And our maximization was by seeing more things rather than doing one thing for a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. Now, somewhere along the way, I have a full-time job, I have a full-time comedy club, and I have a comedy festival, and I have my solo show, and I have the two kids. And after all this, there's some time left around to catch up with some other people around, uh, friends and, and family. Right? So my, my time is already spent. I'm already tired. <laughs> I'm running around, driving around every single day. Uh, there have been days when I've driven 200 miles within the Bay Area to do three shows in one night. Yes. So I'm already doing that. So for me, vacation means go and don't do anything. Take a break, relax. Yes. The, which is 180 degrees from what my mother-in-law wants to do. She wants to check and, a box off. <laughs> yeah. And so my wife is like, hey, they're coming here. They're only here for so many. So let's go show them as many things as we can. They don't live here, so they don't get to see so many things. And so this is exactly how it all started, right? For me, it was October. We were going to be there for 10 days. I figured we are meeting in New York. They flew from India to New York. We flew from San Francisco to New York. And I figured the best thing to do in October in East Coast, go to New England, see the fall colors. We had never seen that before. So spend a few days in Vermont or wherever, and then come back to New York, enough things to do there, have a relaxing weekend, a week, and then come back. But then all this craziness that started surfacing, right? Because my mother-in-law wants to go to Philadelphia to visit the university where the first female doctor from India had studied. My father-in-law wanted to go see the White House. My wife wanted to show them Boston, her university. So now we're talking about like geographically spread cities. There are five options now in 10 days. And I'm trying to figure out what are the two or three that we can do. And we end up doing all five. Oh, my gosh. And as if it wasn't bad enough that the planning was already bad, when we were leaving from Philadelphia to Vermont, my wife found an Amish village an hour away that she's like, oh, when are we going to come back to Philadelphia? Let's go see the Amish village. And so we take this one-hour detour in the other direction. And it's just absolute craziness. that. And I was driving a 14-passenger van. 
because they were in-laws oh, with two God. of their friends who flew in from India with the international baggage. And then we flew across the country for 10 days with bags for four people. So there were eight of us. I needed good space for everybody to just relax. So I'm driving a 14-seater passenger van across the East Coast for 10 days like an unpaid Uber driver. <laughs> and lugging the bags between every stop that we make. And it was just a badly planned, badly executed bad trip for me. I know some of the others enjoyed, but for me, this was just disaster. And I knew this was going to make me sick. And sure enough, the day we flew out of New York and landed in San Francisco, I landed sick to the bone. And well, that's what you, frustrated me the most. Well, we saw, when we, I tell you, you were hysterical. We have about uh, 45 seconds left, Sam. <laughs> tell us, tell, I want to do give you advice and say, I don't know if you should do stand-up at a wedding. I would love to see it, but I know the bridegroom would probably be. <laughs> it would be funny. Where can people find you? What can we do? Google Indian Jewish Comedian. There's only one in the world. Google can't go wrong. You'll oh, find my website, mahatmamoser.com. I dare yep. the listening audience Google that right now. Hit Sam up and come, most certainly come down to the club Thursday, Friday, Saturdays. It is full of wonderful people. The food is good. Sam, thank you so much for spending time with me this afternoon. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, this is Mitch Jezerich. Up and down the radio dial this spring, many stations have been asking you for your support. Now we all present our best case for your hard-earned dollar and loyalty. But unlike other radio stations, KPFA doesn't accept any corporate money or underwriting. We don't even accept money from the government. And we do it to ensure you that our intellectual inquiries are never about a corporate bottom line. Yes, the cost of independence is dangerous and precarious. We walk a high wire with no corporate safety net to ensure that we'll be here tomorrow. Yet for 69 years, KPFA has been supported by you. Allowing this radio station to speak truth to power, lift the voices of resistance, persist.